Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Julia Borston is CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent and author of the new book, When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. In this episode, Julia speaks about why she chose to look at female leadership through the prism of entrepreneurship, noting how few female founders receive VC funding, but how and why those who do find disproportionately more success versus their male counterparts. Julia also recounts her own leadership journey, which she attributes in part to powerfully influential journalism experiences and history teachers, both at Harvard-Westlake and at Princeton. Julia Borston, uncovering history in real time and how society benefits and businesses profit when women lead. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. And the first question we ask every guest is really about their day to day. We used to do this check in during the pandemic. How are you? How are your family? Now it's just a check in, you know, to, to kind of bring us to the present, ground us in the present. <laughs> Tell me about your day today. Were you on TV? I was on TV today. Um, I have a funny job because I'm based in Los Angeles, but I work East Coast hours. So my ah. my day always starts really early, usually between 4.30 and 4.45, depending on how many times I hit snooze um, on my vibrating watch so I don't wake up my, my husband with, with too many alarm clocks. It started with hair and makeup at 5.30 at the NBC's bureau um, on the Universal lot. And then I had a couple of calls. In fact, I had a, a very early conference call with uh, my colleagues at NBC about a project we're collaborating on. Then I was on TV talking about Meta. And then I got to interview um, one of my colleagues at CNBC, the woman who runs the television group, the Universal Studio Group, um, overseeing four TV studios, Perlina Igbokwe. And I interviewed her for an internal Universal event. And then my day launched into a very busy combination of reporting on TikTok. The CEO of TikTok is going to be testifying on a hearing in Capitol Hill tomorrow, and then also working on some AI-related reporting projects and doing some planning for next week when I'm going to be in San Francisco. So it was a lot of different things, jumping between TV and planning calls and reporting and sending a lot of emails. So uh, kind of all over the place, started very early, but all exciting stuff. So I have a follow-up question. That first is about waking up that early. How does that impact the rest of your life? You have evening events the night before, you're a parent, uh, you have a social life. What does that look like for you? When I was younger, I didn't need to get seven hours of sleep and it would be fine if I went to bed whenever and had to wake up at 4.30 or 5. Now I need more sleep and my children are not waking me up in the middle of the night anymore. There was definitely a period where people were like, is it your kids or is it your work that's causing you to be sleep deprived? Um, it's definitely my work. But so now I try to protect my sleep. So I try to go to bed between 9.30 and 10. I really shouldn't go to bed later than 10. That's sort of like my outer limit. I've been known to like leave a work dinner an hour early if I have a super early call. Every once in a while, I'll have to be up at four to be on TV at five. And then I have no shame of just being like, I got to get out of here. But it's hard. It is hard. And now I, my older son is 11 and a half. And last week, he was up studying for a history test 
a fifth grade history test, not like it was anything too big of a deal. But I was like, I have to wake up at four tomorrow. I've got to go to sleep. You got to go to sleep. So I got to go to sleep. And I wanted to go to bed at nine. And he was, you know, had a hard time going to sleep. So I definitely try to go to bed earlier than most people. Back when I was a young reporter in New York, I would go to bed at 11. And it was like, of course, that's what time people go to bed. But now I try to be more diligent in my sleep. But I have to say that it's actually been a great schedule. And one reason I've been so happy to be in my job for so many years at CNBC is that I think it's sort of this way to have more time in my day. I don't waste any time in the morning. I just am up, I'm out the door, I'm ready to go. Um, I sort of leap into action. I don't have to spend any time actually waking up. The downside is I don't get to see my kids in the morning, but the upside is I'm around in the afternoon and I usually pick them up from school and have that sort of afternoon time with them that I wouldn't have if I was taking them to school in the morning. Having taken them to school on multiple occasions, I have to say it's not really quality time. You're more like wrangling cats to get them out the door. So it's actually been, I think, a great gift for me to have this weird early schedule, um, which has given me so much more time with my kids in the afternoon. So I want to get to your book. You wrote a book, When Women Lead. You centered the book and a lot of the conversations that you had with women around entrepreneurship and female entrepreneurs. Why did you center it in that space? It's a good question. And it's one I thought about a lot. I wanted to find the lens through which I could find the women who have defied the highest odds. You know, I could fill books about amazing women leaders at public companies or in the nonprofit space or in the, any any field, really. But what I saw that was so striking and the gender gaps that were so massive that really made me think this would be an amazing lens to look through was all of this data showing how few successful female entrepreneurs there are. And that's based on the fact that female entrepreneurs get very little access to capital. So mm -hmm. between the decade of 2011 and around 2021, which I was reporting on all these topics, female CEOs or female founders drew 3% of all venture capital funding, 3%. Wow. And I kept thinking that there's no other part of the American economy where you'd find women having so little access to capital and to the halls of power. There's just nothing else. I mean, if you look at the mining industry, there are more women in leadership positions than there are in certain parts of the tech industry. It's just wow. one of these gender gaps that's so massive that it's worth examining the, the people who have defied those odds because it, you'd be hard pressed to find um, higher odds anywhere else in the business ecosystem. But also I thought the tech ecosystem was important to look at because it is so incredibly powerful. You mentioned I report on Meta, I cover media and tech. And while media is the most powerful export from America, I would say tech is hands down the most powerful industry in terms of just massive impact on how people live their lives. I mean, you look at your phone, every single app on your phone um, has come from a company that was a venture-backed company, at least at some point in its trajectory. And I thought it was really interesting to show the success stories of the women who have defied those odds, why it's irrational for women to have such little access to that capital, and then also what happens when those women do succeed. But I just think it's really important for us to all take a look, um, not only at the odds defying success of these women, but just understanding how important that gender gap is in terms of the, the ripple effects down the line. Yeah, and I want to get to the qualities of those odds-defying women, but you mentioned it's irrational for only 3% of venture capital investment to go to female founders. These companies are trying to make money, right? There, there's mm -hmm. nothing more rational than the market, at least so, what some people would say. 
what are the obstacles to women receiving this funding? Are they applying for it and not getting it? Are there not enough female founders in general in the world asking for it? Are there not enough females in venture capital who are actually the decision makers? Or is it all, all three? All of the above. Um, but I yeah. would say, first, let me explain why I believe it's irrational. Um, yeah. What I saw, and one reason I wanted to write this book is because I had come across all of this data showing that investors are more successful when they invest in women. Female-founded startups go public or sell a year earlier on average. Female-founded startups tend to be more profitable with lower upfront investment. Wow. And, and based on various studies of startups, and there's no comprehensive measure of how startups perform, but based on different individual studies, there was one by Boston Consulting Group and another by a company called First Round Capital, the females found as uh, startups are dramatically more profitable. So the reason I love the First Round Capital study is because this is an early stage investment firm. Um, at the earliest stages, investors are basically betting on the on the person or on the idea because these are companies are pre-revenue, pre-profits, don't have much of a track record. And after their first decade of operations, they said, let's figure out what actually has been working for us. Like what in retrospect are the trends? Yeah. So they went through and they're like single founders, co-founders in Silicon Valley, outside of Silicon Valley, trying to figure out all the different factors that contributed to outperformance. And what they found is that their female founded companies were 63% more profitable. And the wow. reason I think that's so interesting is they weren't looking for that, right? It just emerged in the data. And they were also oblivious to that fact before they had done the research. Clearly. <laughs> so there's no shortage of data indicating that private investors, you know, venture investors would be smart to invest in more women. And then also the public company levels, companies with women on their boards, more diversity in their boards, women in the C-suite, CFOs, et cetera, and also female CEOs, those companies tend to outperform. The numbers do not lie. So I'm a business reporter. I like numbers. I like facts. I like data. If you simply follow the facts, the diversity would follow. Unfortunately, it's a rather complex situation, and there are various layers of uh, sort of whether it's bias or we can call it pattern matching or sort of these structural challenges that have prevented women um, and people of color from getting access to these funds for far too long. Yeah, when you talk about pattern matching, I think about the, the social network, the movie, right, when that came out, which is a great movie, by the way, but it sort of tells the story of these white male <laughs> heroic figures at Harvard who are creating this company that changed the world. Is it a little bit of that, that that's sort of who a lot of these venture capital firms envision when they think about a founder? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the Mark Zuckerberg effect where everyone's yeah. looking for the next Mark Zuckerberg. But it's also the fact that these are self-perpetuating cycles. Yeah. The more investors back young white men, the more when they're looking for their next investment, they're like, who's going to perform like the last guy I invested in? If you invest in a Harvard grad who sold his first company to Microsoft, and that's a, a pattern that you've established is going to be successful, and all of a sudden you limit your, your idea of who could be a successful founder for you to white men who graduate from Harvard um, with a uh, computer science degree, all of a sudden you're limiting your pool. But it's a natural human instinct. And one thing that I think is really important is to make sure that people understand that I'm not assuming any malice. I'm not saying that sure. people are intentionally excluding women or people of color from their investments. I think it's an unintentional thing, but it is an unintentional thing with massive consequences. So I just think it's really important to identify these sort of human instinct, not only to invest in people who remind you of the last guy you invested in, the sort of Mark looking to invest in Lex Mark Zuckerberg, but also this phenomenon of people wanting to 
invest in people who remind them of themselves. I mean, there's a whole phenomenon of people who are mentors wanting to find a mentee who reminds them of the younger version of themselves. There's nothing evil about that. There's nothing malicious about it, but it does perpetuate a certain type of people who are more likely to be in positions of power. Right, which gets to the point of having more women in leadership who um, not only can run successful companies, but also mentor other females uh, and help them rise the ranks. Yeah, and also to break the cycle. I mean, look, one reason I thought it was so important to include a really wide variety of successful female leaders in my book, and these are women with incredibly different backgrounds, different races, different perspectives. Some are immigrants, some went to Harvard Business School, some didn't graduate college. To include that diversity of success stories, so men who are reading the book say, oh, this is what success looks like. This is the breadth and depth of what success can look like. I need to break free from this vicious cycle of assuming that leaders only look or sound a particular way. Well, you mentioned the diversity of the women whom you interviewed and profile in your book. Where are the commonalities? What are the commonalities in the qualities of these women who have defied the odds? Um, well, there are a couple of key qualities. And I have to say what's really important is I'm not a biologist. I'm a journalist. I'm a storyteller. I have a ton of research and data. But this is data about things that are, for the most part, socialized. I'm talking about ways in which women have been trained by society to behave or qualities they've been trained to nurture. And therefore, the, the things I'm talking about are things that men can do too. And sometimes they do do them. But what's so important is to say the ways that women have used these more traditionally female skills and strategies to succeed, that also opens the door for men to emulate them. Um, in that way. So I think this that's why this book is for everybody, for men to understand, oh, if I lead like that woman does, I might be successful. And ultimately, I do want everyone, including men, to break free from this stereotype and archetype and to understand that they can be successful leaders by leading in their own way. So that was a long way of saying there are, there are a lot, um, I sort of hope these skills and strategies will resonate with everybody. And also they are not biologically determined. Um, a couple of the key ones, um, I'll break them into sort of skills and strategies. The skills I would say are empathy, the idea that women tend to rate higher when it comes to skills around empathy. And um, empathy is incredibly valuable when it comes to negotiating, understanding your counterparty, motivating your team, working with partners it can be incredibly valuable to understand where other people are coming from. Another one is vulnerability. Women are more likely to deploy vulnerability as a tool to invite collaboration. You're going to have a lot easier time getting people to come collaborate with you if they understand that you're going to give them agency, you're going to give them autonomy, you're not going to be micromanaging them and saying, look, this is an area I really know nothing about. I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in this area is a great way to invite collaboration. Another skill which women have, which was a huge surprise to me, is gratitude. Mm. I never associated gratitude with it being anything business related. Um, I always thought it was about people's personal lives. But I found in a, in a number of these interviews, and I conducted 120 interviews, there was a string of interviews one week where all these women were talking about what they were grateful for, how they were so grateful for some traumatic experience or access to this crazy problem. And I thought it was so weird that they were all talking about gratitude. So that led me down the rabbit hole of trying to understand what gratitude has to do with business and why it might be a great skill. What I found in the research is that women tend to practice gratitude more than men. Women are trained to enjoy or socialized to enjoy the feeling of gratitude more than men do. And part of that is that men sometimes feel if they feel too much gratitude, oh, maybe I owe someone something and that's not a good mm. feeling. But what's amazing about gratitude and why it's so valuable for business 
is that gratitude drives patience. If you take a minute to think about how grateful you are for everything you have, in that moment, you'll be less anxious about a near-term win. You can say, I'm grateful for what I got now, so therefore I can afford to think more about the long-term. I can I can afford to not be anxious and, and take the near-term upside and wait for more upside down the road. And that obviously is incredibly valuable if you can take a long-term approach to your business. And this is something that I saw time and time again, women saying, I'm really focused on the long-term, the five-year, the 10-year, the 25-year from mm. now. And it's interesting to see how gratitude plays into that. So those, are what I would say, are the three key skills. And then in terms of the strategies, women are more likely to deploy a communal approach to leadership, pulling in perspectives from across an organization. They are more likely to take a divergent approach. So asking on questions that may seem tangential, pulling on threads that are sort of sort of related, but to do that in order to have a broader understanding of the landscape. And then the last strategy is purpose-driven companies. Hmm. Women are more likely to found a company or work at a company that has a purpose in addition to generating profits. And there's a lot of research showing that having that additional purpose is great to attract talent to come work at your company when you're if you're interfacing with customers to get them hooked on your product. And I heard a number of women tell me that when times got tough, instead of giving up, having that purpose really propelled them through and reminded them that they had to stick it out because they were going to be helping people if they could. What about, particularly in entrepreneurship, what about sort of the capacity for risk? When you look at men and women, I'm not saying that there are innate differences in terms of risk capacity between men and women, but they've looked at parenting strategies, parents of boys and girls, when a toddler is sort of approaching the top of a slide or something like that, parents of boys tend to go, oh, they'll be fine. And parents of girls tend to sort of be very careful about the. Is there any truth to the notion that more men go into entrepreneurship than women because of a kind of culturally enforced notion of risk? I would definitely say I, I read that study about the slide as well. I have two boys. I think a lot about this. I was definitely not raised to take on a lot of risk. Look, I've had two jobs in my career, so right. perfect example of risk averse. But what's interesting is I do think that's very socialized. And I think it sort of correlates with this research I've seen about men and women and confidence, right? Mm. So I think that the concept of risk is an interesting one because like even the word risk can scare women off. There, um, Sally Krawcheck, who worked on Wall Street for many years, now runs an investing company for women called Elevest, said that in their research, when they were asking women what their risk tolerance was for investing, which is a thing that people ask, just the concept of risk scared women away. And they said, oh, risk tolerance? Oh, I don't know. Let me let me think about it and get back to you. But when they reframed the conversation to what kind of target opportunities are you looking for, like what, what's the upside your goal is, and they changed it from sort of risks to goals and just reframed the conversation, really talking about the same underlying issues, but got rid of the word risk, women engaged much more avidly and mm. didn't say, oh, I'll call you back later. I, I have to think about it. So I think there is something about the concept of risk that is concerning to women. But I think that a lot of that plays into this idea of like your chances of winning as a female founder or CEO are so low because look at who has succeeded before you. Look at the way female founders have had targets on their back in too many occasions. Yeah. Um, so I think this is very much socialized. But there's this great data about how women's confidence increases with age. And when men and women enter the workforce, men's confidence starts up, up here, women's confidence starts out down here, and men's confidence declines gradually, women's confidence increases along with their experience. 
And the confidence sort of crisscrosses around age 40, at which point men and women have the same amount of confidence. Women's confidence continues to grow until about their 60s, whereas men sort of drops and then plateaus. So I think those things are are correlated. If you um, are a young man and you have super high confidence that you can do anything, then maybe it doesn't feel like an insane risk to start a company. You're just doing your God-given right to launch a game-changing industry-defining startup, right, if your confidence is way up there. So I think what's been interesting for me to see is how so many women did not start their company straight out of college. Yes, there are plenty of women in my book who started their companies in business school, and some started their companies when they were younger, but most of the women I've interacted with started their companies later than that sort of male stereotype of the college dropout, the Harvard dropout. Um, and I think that correlates to them just building up the experience to have the confidence to take that kind of risk, right? To, to say this is a calculated risk, but I now have the confidence in my own experience and expertise in order to be able to do that. So I think those things are very much connected. Yeah. And I suppose capacity for risk isn't always a positive, right? I mean, if you look at, you mentioned that female founders take the long view much more often maybe than male founders. And you look at something like Silicon Valley Bank <laughs> and the amount of exposure that they had, uh, you know, maybe if they had had to- Or Sam Bankman-Fried, like Sam Bankman-Fried took right. on a huge amount of risk. With, with um, crypto, yeah. Or Adam Newman with WeWork, he took on a huge amount of risk, irrational right. risk. All of them, both of them took on irrational risk. And then I would say, you know, people were like, well, what about Elizabeth Holmes? I would say, well, she was just a fraud. I don't think that was about <laughs> risk. I think she was just a fraud. Um, yes. But she is one rare example of a woman who failed, but who unfortunately I think has eaten up far too much of the public attention when it comes to female CEOs. Last question on this is, you mentioned that you don't imply that there's malice in terms of this inequality, and perhaps there are you know, sexist or chauvinist VC folks out there. I mean, that, that could be true too. Studies have been done around female leadership, female C-suite, or the, the lack of female C-suite representation. The notion of the parenting penalty comes into play as well. Uh, they've done studies that women in their 20s, at least in the last 10, 20 years, there's equity around pay until they get to about their late 20s and early 30s and something just really shifts and changes and you don't have to be a, a research expert to understand that that's parenthood and that it, that affects men and women differently. And there is specific research that ties the pay gap to women in their in their 30s, to, specifically to parenting. There's some great research that's been done on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I suppose we're getting off a tangent here a little bit with how we solve that problem, but do you see that in tech and entrepreneurship as oh, well? Oh, 100%. I mean, the yeah. number of women who said to me, um, well, it was interesting because I was doing a lot of these interviews during the pandemic. A lot of them said I was pregnant when I was fundraising, but because it was during the pandemic, nobody knew because you're only, mm. you know, showing up on Zoom from right. more than the waist up. And so they were like, nobody could see I was pregnant. Women have told me horror stories about trying to raise money while pregnant or plenty of investors saying, hey, how could you possibly do this company? You have young children. So it does play into the stereotype that mothers of young children are not going to be able to do their jobs. It's interesting because some of the women I talked to who are running their companies um, while having young children is they talked about the importance of their team or they have a co-CEO or they have a husband who does not have a full-time job and he's the sort of primary go-to parent on a lot of things. So there are ways to work around it and, and to enable women to succeed even while they have um, additional familial obligations at home. And there are plenty of examples of women who've done so. But I do think it really plays into the bias against women, particularly young women. And I don't think that is a coincidence that that's one reason why women tend to 
start companies when their kids are a little bit older. I mean, there are so many women right. I referenced in my book who their kids were in high school by the time they started their companies. And what about the male role in all of this? I know this is hilarious. I'm, we're, we're talking about a book called When Women Lead, and I'm asking about men. But um, no, many that's men... the point. I wrote the book for men to read. Whoops. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book for men to read. Um, it, men are an essential piece of this. I mean, I wrote the book for men yeah. to read, and I didn't want to have the word woman on the cover because I was so determined for men to read it. And my publisher said, don't be silly. Women buy 80% of all books, and this book will inspire women. But I think it's really a book that is an incredibly surprising book for men. And the reason I think it's most important for men to read it is for them to see these role models of women and say, oh, the next time I'm looking for an investment or trying to imagine what a manager would look like, I need to break free from that stereotype of just that one archetype of a guy leader. And also, um, there's so much data in here about the financial opportunity and in investing in women. Yeah. And I want men to understand that men control more money and power than women do. And they need to see that they will make more money if they invest in diversity. So many different studies explaining why and how they will make more money if they invest in diversity. And I have found working in a school, I mean, education is a different type of environment and maybe a different type of skill than entrepreneurship or business. But I have found many of the male leaders I have worked with who have been successful, and I include those people like Rick Commons and Terry Barnum and John Wimbish and male leaders that I work with here at Harvard-Westlake, have a lot of the qualities that you equate to great female leaders or, yeah. or that you connect to them um, can be very effective, particularly in education, I think. I mean, men need to adopt some of these leadership skills that are so clearly demonstrated by women. And I would say coming out of the pandemic, those skills and strategies I just talked about, I think those are table stakes now. No leader of any gender can be managing a team that's dispersed and managing different issues and dealing with these uncertainties of the pandemic or the economy or whatever it is without being empathetic or showing vulnerability or leading in a communal way. I just think this is the new, this is a new era and all of that stuff is absolutely essential. Well, now I want to get to you, Julia, because you uh, are not only a media and tech reporter uh, for CNBC, you are a Harvard-Westlake graduate as well. Can you talk a little bit about growing up in LA and going to Harvard-Westlake and your experience here? I really feel like Harvard-Westlake helped me understand who I was and how to move through the world in a way that really nothing else did. I'm so grateful for my experience at Harvard-Westlake for so many reasons, including the fact that it's a big school. And there was an opportunity to get to know lots of different kinds of kids, take lots of different kinds of classes, and also move between friend groups and feel like there was just a lot of flexibility in that. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I also realized that I was never going to be the smartest one at any one thing at Harvard-Westlake. And it was a huge school. And there were kids who were taking five languages or whatever crazy thing. And I was never going to be that kind of number one, but it really pushed me to find the things that I was really good at. So it sort of enabled me to not want to just fight to be number one, but to say like, hey, who am I? What am I good at? What do I love doing? And how can I do those things? So, you know, I, I edited the foreign language magazine and the community service magazine, and I, I was able to be entrepreneurial and create these things at Harvard-Westlake in a way that I certainly would have, have not been able to if I was at a smaller school um, where I probably would have been fighting to be number one in the class, whatever that means. I just had amazing academic experiences, but then also was able to have these extracurriculars where I really could take a leadership role. Um, and I have to say, I, I worked at the summer enrichment program, and I will never forget this, but I 
complained they didn't have an art program for the kids who were coming in to do summer enrichment. They were doing sports and academics. I was I was an arty kid. I love the art classes I took at Harvard Westlake. They were transformative. And I said, oh, you should have my art teacher teach one of those. And they said, she's not available. Why don't you teach it? So I had the amazing experience of creating an art curriculum for a summer enrichment program for I think it was fourth and fifth graders when I was starting in ninth grade. And so it was that sort of like, if you want to do this thing, we will support you and we will help you and we will push you to do a good job, but take the lead. And I'm hugely grateful for that opportunity. And it really, you know, pushed me to think about like paying forward what I got access to, which was that arts education that I knew public schools didn't have access to. So that was really informative for me. And then, of course, I worked on the newspaper. My journalism career started in 10th grade when I I started on the newspaper with Ms. Kathy Neumeyer, who's our newspaper advisor. And I'm very grateful to her. I always joke that, you know, I was an an editor for many years. I edited the op-ed page and the art section and this section and that section. I was not editor-in-chief. So I always joke with Kathy that I've had my big journalism career to to show her that she made a mistake in 12th grade, not making me editor in chief. But she, she was a great teacher and she really taught us to take the journalism seriously and understand how to sort of go through that process and understanding also that journalism is a team sport. And there's something really fun about the collaboration on the newspaper altogether. And what about other teachers? I know that there were, Kathy Neumeyer is one that has been brought up, just brought up by Deb Kazarian, who's a, a year away from you, Spencer Raskoff. Yeah, Spencer was was a couple years ahead of me on the newspaper. Doug was a year ahead of me. He ran the sports section, no surprise. That's right. Uh, so she clearly treated us like a farm team for future journalism outlets. But academically, I just had so many amazing teachers. I was a history major at Princeton, and I really credit my history teachers at Harvard Westlake for inspiring that love of history. Mr. Zwamer was my AP US history teacher. He fostered the most amazing environment in his classrooms where there was real intellectual debate. And you really had to Mm. not only know what you were talking about, but understand the arguments that were being made. And I think that, I mean, he could have been teaching that class in any Ivy League university, and it was just a next level class. And I remember some of those debates that really forced me to question the things I thought I believed in, to understand perspectives. We were talking about APUS history here. It was not a philosophy class, but it was an amazing, amazing class. I still remember the classroom we sat in. And then the other one that was a real game changer for me was Dr. Carl Kleins. He was the AP art history teacher. He was epic. And I fell in love with art history. I'd always been interested in it. I had that love of art. But he was teaching a college-level course. And it really inspired a love in art history that prompted me to make my senior thesis at Princeton and all of my independent work at Princeton was about the sort of intersection of the art world, of artistic movements, along with the cultural and political movements. And I really think that I trace that back to my time in those two classes. And I had great English teachers. I had an amazing creative writing teacher in seventh or eighth grade, Ms. Littenberg, who was just a game changer, amazing creative writing teacher. But there was something about that history experience where I really felt like they were treating me like an, an adult student. You know, I, they weren't treating me like a kid and they expected a different level of academic interaction for me and my classmates. And I think that really sort of, you know, inspired me and my classmates to really level up in those experiences. Do you feel like this kind of connection between art and history kind of led you to the career you have now? I mean, you're someone that is 
kind of following history in real time because you're a reporter and then you cover this industry media and tech that is somewhat about art even tech yeah. as Steve Jobs taught us is sort of about the intersection of kind of art and science right um, look I feel like I am covering history in real time I feel like in a way yeah. I've been doing the same thing ever since I was in high school which is write history papers except for now they're about the present I think back you know the the independent work I did in college and that was all about instead of interviewing people I was going back to original sources and I loved going to these dusty old libraries and looking at these letters between different people uh, and political figures. And now here I am interviewing people and also trying to make connections between things. So I, I don't know if it's if it's about art so much uh, and maybe business has replaced art in that role. And instead of art and, and culture, it's now about a business and culture. But um, mm. I do feel like everything I ever know, I learned it at, at Harvard Westlake. You know, it's just been this, this sense of I, Harvard Westlake teaches kids how to write. You know, that's what it is, how to write a paper, how not to be intimidated by writing a paper. And I do feel like being a journalist my whole life, you know, Kathy Neumeyer said how to ask questions. Don't forget to ask the hardest questions. Don't be afraid to ask the hardest questions. And I also was raised by a family where question asking was a sign of intelligence and curiosity. Mm. And if you didn't ask questions, it meant you weren't paying attention. And so I think it sort of all added up to this career, which in retrospect seems obvious, but... I certainly, um, even as a senior in college, did not think I was going to be a professional journalist. I guess this is an important moment to pause. I host this podcast. I ask people questions as yeah. part of this series. What's your best advice on asking people questions? To listen. You're listening. You're doing a great job. But I think that too often, whether you're a journalism student or whatever, you write a list of questions and your goal is to get through the list of questions. And I think the best interviews are when you really prepare, you think about what your list of questions is going to be, you write the list of questions, you're ready to go, and then you don't look at the list. And you start off the conversation and you ask the question, and then you just listen and interact with the person. And at the end, I always look down and make sure I didn't miss anything. And I'll say, before we go, let me ask you about this thing, which maybe I should have asked about earlier. But I think that to me, it's really about listening and responding. Sometimes the best answers you get really are to questions that weren't on your original list. I do think that the process of writing down a list of questions is useful, but I have found the real art in interviewing for me is liberating myself from the tyranny of that list and just really engaging in the moment. That's great advice. So let's get to Princeton. After Harvard-Westlake, you went to Princeton. I'm a Princeton alum, so I should mention that we are in the Sweet 16 uh, this weekend <laughs> yes. for men's. I should mention our women's basketball team was also in the tournament. We lost in the second round, but our men are in the Sweet 16. By the time this comes out, maybe we will have won the entire tournament. Uh, I mean, knows, I, I'm, I go Tigers, that's all I'll say. <laughs> but tell me about your Princeton experience, not only kind of what you were engaged with there, and I guess we learned a little bit about your independent study, that you were a history major, a, history a little bit major. about your both your academic and your uh, kind of general experience there. So I, I worked on the newspaper in college. <laughs> surprise, surprise. After the Kathy Neumeyer, uh, the Chronicle experience. And, you know, I have to say that my community at the Chronicle was so important for my, my high school experience. I knew I wanted to work on a publication in college, and I found myself at the Daily Princetonian. And what was so great about it is it really was a daily newspaper. I mean, yeah. and by the time you were a junior, if you were working on it, you were a paid editor, and there was a publishing side and a journalism side, and it was a, it felt like a real job. And I was an editor my junior and senior year, and I just really talk about a community. I mean, I really loved it, and it felt like you were part of the of the campus community at the time. I don't know if this is still the case, but the newspaper was delivered to people's doors five days a week. 
If you wrote op-eds, people read them. People would talk about what was in the newspaper. And in a lot of ways, and there was a one year I edited the op-ed page. I was writing op-eds um, and editing columns. It really felt like you're sort of part of the campus conversation and able to drive the conversation to a certain extent. So I really love that feeling of like being part of things on the campus. Maybe, I don't know if you're involved in the newspaper. Maybe that was just in my, in our mind. But it did feel really great to be connected to the community. I was in student government, so I was covered a lot in the newspaper. Yes, exactly. We we were you know we reported on the on the student government. It was sort of like a, a fourth estate thing. It was, but it was great. So I really loved doing the newspaper. I also was in a dance group. I did advanced dance at Harvard Westlake, and I was in a dance group at Princeton. Um, I did not do sports, despite all the data in my book about the value of women's sports. I, <laughs> in, I I I wish I could go into a time machine, but I did dance, not a competitive sport. And I just feel like there was something about that Princeton community. That allowed me to sort of continue the things that I love so much at Harvard Westlake, including the newspaper, but then also this idea of independent work. I remember freshman year, within a, the first week or two, I was assigned a five-page paper for a seminar I was doing, a freshman seminar. And I remember some of the other kids in the class freaking out. I don't think they'd ever done a five-page paper. And I was like, five-page paper? We did those all the time. You know, what's yeah. the big deal? I think sort of that muscle memory of getting used to writing papers was really helpful. But what I really loved about my academic experience at Princeton and what really drew me to the history department is, again, this idea of independent work, independent study. I love that you could talk about your work with your classmates because no one was competitive because we were all working on our own projects. So we could all be supportive of each other because you're just doing your own thing. And I had two professors in the history department who um, really helped sort of foster my interest. And in fact, I was thinking about applying to grad school to get my PhD in history. My junior paper advisor was the head of the history department at the time, Dr. Phil Nord, and he was an expert in in modern French history. And then my senior thesis advisor was Dr. Anton Robinbach, who specialized also in modern European history and specifically on sort of the, the period between the wars. And he um, advised me on my senior thesis, which was about the, the period between the wars. And he was more of a, a German expert, but I was focused on France. So he was, I mean, wow. these were amazing professors. I feel so grateful to have had that access to professors with the kind of access that typically you wouldn't get in most universities unless you were a graduate student. Part of me wishes I'd, I'd gone down that graduate school route. I certainly think I would have loved grad school um, as someone who likes to write papers and now apparently I, I the book along with it. But I had, a, I feel like I just had a great academic and uh, extracurricular experience there. So then after Princeton, you talk in the book about how you had this view that, or your parents had a view that sexism would be over kind of by the time you became an adult and entered the working world and you quickly realized that wasn't the case. Rather than sort of going through that story though, uh, I'm curious because you mentioned you, you had a really strong mentor that actually did support your growth as a woman yeah. and as a, a female leader. And I'm curious if we could kind of to, to, to kind of bend toward the positive. Can you talk about the qualities totally. of that person yeah. and what that meant to you? Yeah. And also, I have to say, look, like Harvard Westlake felt very gender equitable to me. I mm. had one year of all girls in seventh That's grade right. before the schools merged. But we applied to the school knowing it was going to become a co-ed school. You know, I definitely know there are some women who resented that they had signed up for a, an all-girls school and then the rug got pulled out from under them. From my perspective, I knew it was going to be co-ed. I had one year of all girls. Seventh grade was an awkward year. I had braces and it was a mess anyways. <laughs> and 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 then I was in a co-ed environment, but it very much felt equitable and then Princeton felt very equitable, whether it was the newspaper or student government. There was no sense of men dominating anything at all. And it felt very balanced. 
but so for me, you know, my mom had told me, you know, that things would be, you know, I would have the potential to do anything by the time I entered the working world. Um, and that was not necessarily the case. I definitely saw the bias and the challenges that women faced, but I was really lucky to have a male mentor right out of the gate. I was the youngest person Fortune Magazine had ever hired. I was 21 years old, barely 21 years old when I graduated college, started right away. And they signed me to do reporting for this editor named Andy, Andy Serwer. Um, he was an editor at large. He went on to become editor-in-chief of Fortune Magazine and then was editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance. But what was so great is that he was very open. He was, there's was nothing proprietary. He would let me listen to him interview people on the phone. He would ask me to go interview people and then help me, you know, critique my interview on the, on the tape that we used and tell me how it could be better. But, you know, he had two daughters and I always think mm. that he treated me the way he would want someone to have treated one of his daughters and just sort of the sense of like, you know, I showed him what I could do. I really proved myself to him and then he believed in me and um, you know, he was more than a mentor. He was really a sponsor. And there was once, and he used to appear every day on CNN talking about various business news stories. And he really pushed me to do that. And I said, look, I'm, what do I know? I'm 22 years old. I remember once the first time they asked me to go on, I was like, what are you talking about? I can't go on live television. I don't know anything about this. And he said, you, you're going to be great. You know what you're doing. He pushed me to get outside my comfort zone. I was very risk averse. And he said, what are you afraid of? What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, I joke about this with him all the time. Like he gave, gave me my start in TV and I've been at CNBC for almost 17 years. He wow. he deserves credit for that. But he, he, you know, he always jokes like I he didn't do anything. He just told me to go on TV. But I feel very grateful to have been given that push. And I know that that was as much out of my luck of getting assigned to him as anything. So I, I, I feel like not everyone was as lucky. And I know that that gave me a a certain advantage when navigating the world of television or just anything to have someone say, of course you could do it. You know, and after I stopped working yeah. with him directly, I would go to him for advice. And I remember sitting on his couch and saying, how do you think I should handle this? Whether it was a negotiation about my, you know, what kinds of stories I was going to be writing or just how to handle a tough story. And I was grateful to be able to go to him and ask him those questions. You said you've been at CNBC for 17 years now, which is a very long Almost, time. Almost 16 and a half, 16 and a half. 16 and a half. What has kept you there and what do you love about what you do? I, um, it's, it's not just the fact that I have my afternoons free and I wake up at <laughs> You can pick up your morning. kids from school. I actually think it's the fact that I've been very entrepreneurial and they've encouraged me to be entrepreneurial. Hmm. And I also feel like my job has changed so dramatically since I first started because the, the business world has changed. You know, I'm not just covering the movie industry, the entertainment industry. I'm covering tech now. I went from media to now I'm senior media and tech reporter. Yeah. And I'm doing a stuff on AI. And the, the, the world has changed just so dramatically that the nature of the stories I'm doing has changed. There are also all these new platforms. So, you know, I, I host a streaming show. I'm doing one on Friday. And there's just this flexibility to do streaming shows. There's a lot of air inventory if you're on streaming that really enables me to go deeper and ask more complex questions because I am able to take a step back from the day-to-day -day focus on the stock market, which is what we do on air, to investigate different stories um, in this new format. And then the other thing is I've been able to create these franchises for CNBC that have been so fun, one of which is this Disruptor 50 list. We're going into our 11th year. It's a list I created right after my first son was born, where I was like, I, if I'm going to be working, I'm going to do the stuff that's really interesting to me. And so I pitched this list that's the 50 fastest growing private companies looking at their disruptive impact on the public companies and also their potential to become the next generation of giants. And it's been really fun. And it's turned into this year-round 
project of looking at innovation and technology and its impact on the broader business ecosystem. And getting to work on that, and now there are events that are part of it. We have a newsletter. Like, it's just become this big franchise, and it's my baby, and I love it, and it's so fun to work on, and really keeps me curious and interested and stimulated. And then the other thing is about five years ago now, I created this initiative we call Closing the Gap. It's a it's a franchise on TV and on online on CNBC.com. And also we have a newsletter. And the idea is to cover the people and companies closing gender and diversity gaps. And this, of course, played into my interest when I was working on my book. But what I love about that is, you know, I'm, a, I'm clearly a positive person. And this is highlighting the solutions and telling positive stories that I think need to be told um, for everybody. It's been really fun to get to sort of work on these franchises, build them out, see the different places they can live on different platforms. You know, I have to say, CBC is a great place to work. A lot of people have been there for many, many years. And I also think just from a journalism standpoint, if you're going to be on television and do serious news, the business world is a great lens through which to tell that news. And so it's been it's been quite a trip. So before we go, there are a few personal questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles, where you grew up. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the three questions uh, surround those. First, what is Julia Borston's favorite movie? Well, I would tell you a movie that my husband made, which I think is great, and I can't wait to show my children, which is Whiplash. Because oh, yeah. they complain about having tough coaches, and I can't wait to show them that movie, to show them what a really tough coach is like. So um, so I think that's a really brilliant movie. It's a great and, movie. My, and my wife husband loves worked, that My husband movie. produced it, yeah. That's right. That was a big hit for your husband's company, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, it was a great one. Not the most feel-good movie, but, um, but a beautiful movie. No, but it kind of grips you, you know? Yeah. What will my kids think of it? That's the question. It's true. That is not the example of sort of communal leadership that the uh, that the, <laughs> no, the band no, it's teacher a takes. Example. But I do think it'll be interesting for them to see like what a really tough coach is like. That's true. That's true. Uh, secondly, what is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Either a restaurant that you and your, your husband, your family love, or something you make at home. I love to cook. I love to host dinner parties. But there's so many great restaurants in LA. Have you been to Justa, G-J-U-S-T-A, in Venice? Yeah, next they to Jolina. Amazing, right? yes. yes. Yeah, no, it's it's a couple blocks away. Oh, it's a couple but blocks away. They have away. the most amazing lunch. They have the, I don't like tuna fish sandwiches. They have the best tuna sandwich I've ever had. They have amazing sort of brunch food. Just everything is delicious there. And I recommend going to the beach, getting all sandy with your kids. And then you go there and you have an enormous lunch and it's just amazing. The food is so good. And you can also bring stuff home. And that's always a treat when you get to go home with a baguette or something. What is your favorite place in LA? It could be a part of town. It could be a street. I love the Hauser and Worth Gallery downtown. Hmm. And there's an amazing restaurant there also called Manuela, which I love. And I love, I love the art museums in LA. I love art the LA art scene. So I would say that, but I also really love hiking in Los Angeles. And I tend to do this hike up Beachwood with my girlfriends almost once a weekend. We try to go every weekend. It's probably twice a month and just hiking up behind the Hollywood sign. And we go really early in the morning before our kids are demanding our attention. And it's just a great way to, to start your weekend. Last question. You mentioned you were the parent of two boys. I am the parent of two girls. And I'm always looking for parenting advice. My daughters are young. They are four and a half and almost two. What is your advice to me, I guess, as the parent of 
girls. Um, you can think back to your own sort of upbringing and things that your parents did, or maybe even thinking about it through the lens of some of these female entrepreneurs and ways that I could engender in my daughters the types of qualities that you found so impressive. You know, I am so grateful, both for your children and for mine, that there are all these books right now that didn't exist when I was growing up that really show women role models in a totally new way. And there are these Rebel Girls books. Have you discovered the Rebel Girls books? No, no. These are amazing. I and, and just a plug, I wrote an essay for one of them, a letter to Dear Rebel Girls, and I did a podcast for them. But um, the, the CEO of the company is a great woman and a friend. Um, but there are these books that really tell the story, the amazing real-life stories of these women um, in all sorts of different fields. And they talk about some girls, like younger girls, and then also the stories of women um, who've had these amazing lives in all sorts of different fields. And my kids think they're awesome. And I just think the ability to share a diversity of role models with our kids is so valuable. And one of the main gifts of writing my book, When Women Lead, is I wrote it and every night I would have dinner with my kids and tell them these crazy stories about what the women who I was writing about, what they had to deal with, what they survived, what they succeeded with, how they managed tough situations, the time the woman was stuck after an avalanche and how she had to boil water to survive and how that inspired her to found her company. To be able to go to my kids and tell them those stories, I think is so important to sort of imprint that on their psyche, to see that they're amazing people who are not just the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, but also all of these phenomenal women. So read them the Rebel Girls books. I should send you one. So the Rebel books and maybe even When Women Lead by Julia Borson. Yeah, I think they're a little young. They're a little young, but eventually. <laughs> Someday. Someday. Well, Julia, thank you so much for the time today. I know you were insanely busy and had a, an insanely busy day. And so I appreciate you sparing an hour for the sporting cast. It's really my pleasure. And I'm just so grateful to Harvard Westlake for having given me the grit to write a book <laughs> during the pandemic. And making those five uh, page essays seem so easy once you got to college. Yeah, right? piece of cake. <laughs> a book is just a bunch of five page essays strung together. That's right. Well, thank you again, Julia. Thanks for joining the sporting cast. 